Welcome to We Are Human Leaders. Our societies are permeated with bias. Many people are subject to multiple biases without even being aware. At the same time, AI is everywhere in our everyday lives. So what are the implications when bias is built into AI? The answer is potentially dangerous with implications for our leadership, our workplaces and far beyond. And yet there is hope. I'm Sally Clark, and today Alexis Sana and I are speaking to Tracy Spicer about her new book, Man Made, How the Bias of the Past is Being Built into the Future. She unpacks the shocking forms of bias she discovered in the seven years of research for the book, the implications of AI for work and leadership, and practical steps leaders can take now to harness AI for positive impacts in the workplace of the future. Tracy Spicer is a multiple award-winning author, journalist, and broadcaster. She has also been awarded for her extensive charity and social enterprise work. Tracy is a sought-after keynote speaker and thought leader, and you're about to find out why. She's articulate, compelling, and a great storyteller. Tracy is also a glass half full kind of person, and this shines through in her solution-oriented thinking around what can be a daunting topic, AI and the future of work. Let's dive in. Welcome to We Are Human Leaders, Tracy. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here with us today. And we'd love to start by getting to know you a little more and the journey that's brought you to the important work that you're doing now. Oh, look, thank you for having me on the show. I love what you're doing around leadership and humanity, two areas that I'm really passionate about. I guess that passion started in the early Cro-Magnon era when I decided to become a journalist. I grew up in a pretty low socioeconomic area and I really felt this desire and drive to tell untold stories and to look at the big picture levers in society that can be pulled to make the world a better place for everybody, not just for a privileged few. So I went off, did a journalism degree, started off in radio, went to television. And after several very successful, very joyous decades of news reading, I ended up being subjected to pregnancy and maternity discrimination and lost my job when I had two small children. That really lit a fire in my belly about the issue of women's rights and, of course, more recently, intersectionality around it. I still continue to work in broadcasting, on radio and television. I wrote a book about my experiences. And recently, I've written this second book about bias in artificial intelligence, which sort of brings together all of my interests in society, in feminism, and really, at the heart of it, equity. Mm. Tracy, it sounds like you've had an opportunity to have both a lived experience with the discrimination and the bias that you speak of, but also I'm sure through your journalism career, also sort of witnessed how that bias is really built into the systems that we operate in. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Oh, it's exactly right. During my career, I did documentaries in developing countries, for example, about gendercide in India, you know, the murdering of female fetuses. And in Uganda, I did stories on domestic violence, which at that point in time, when I did the doco about 10 years ago, the rate was roughly 80%. What I learned from doing those stories was a couple of things, really. First of all, the structural issues. I mean, the women of Uganda were very disempowered because they could never be granted the right to own property. The parents would always, father would always hand down the property to the son or sons. And when you don't have power in a society, you are vulnerable 
to violence and to sexual assault and to financial abuse effectively. So yeah, doing those stories taught me about the structural issues holding women back, but also the incredible power that is within all of us. And especially when we join together collectively, whether it's in our own communities or our friendship groups or our work groups with our male allies or around the world, you know, the biggest changes in history, the civil rights movement happened because of grassroots groups around the world joining together and saying, now, hang on, we have power collectively. You're absolutely right, Trace. It really makes me think a lot about the work that we do in terms of you know, work being potentially a vehicle for this change. And it really does start at this grassroots level often that we see the systemic inequities and that we start to you know, call them out and then address them together. And I think it's so interesting that you've chosen the lens of AI in your latest book through which to look at these biases and, and really unpack them. To get a little bit granular about AI before we delve into the sort of bias component, it's been described as a constellation of technologies. Can you explain a little bit for us what this means, Tracy? <laughs> yeah, that's a fancy term to say that AI is everywhere in everything you use every day. And some of it's narrow AI, like a pretty simple chatbot. And some of it's more general, strong AI, really complex systems. Because some people think of artificial intelligence as robots in a lot of the films, you know, Terminator or Skynet. But there's artificial intelligence in smart elevators. You know, when you press it, you want to go to level 16 and it says go to elevator A. That's artificial intelligence. Every time you get onto Netflix and it recommends shows for you, that's an algorithm. Every time you use, of course, ChatGPT, MidJourney or one of the image generators, that's AI as well. If you do online shopping and there's no mushrooms and they give you a substitution, that's AI. We've got a little robot vacuum cleaner that's the same. So the constellation of technologies term just means it's an umbrella phrase for all the different ways that AI can be used. It took me a long time. I'm not very technologically adept, to be honest. And it took me a long time, seven years of researching this book to actually understand how artificial intelligence works and to get past the idea that it's somehow a mathematical equation and it's unbiased. It has all of our human biases built into it. It's so interesting that you say that. I think that must have been, I can imagine, a very sort of pivotal moment in the journey for you. Was it a moment or how did that insight sort of happen for you? Oh, it happened through one interview and one piece of research. And both of these machine learning experts, and I'll explain machine learning in a moment, said an algorithm is an opinion expressed in code about how the world should work. Because when the very small group of young white men in Silicon Valley, they're predominantly the programmers in the world, right? The powerful programmers. When they create something, it starts with a data set. Now, the data sets are a whole pile of images and words and videos scraped off the bin fire that is the internet. And that's called dirty data. Now, inevitably, it's historical. And a lot of dirty data sets have books in them that were written in the 1980s and 90s where every doctor is a male and every nurse is a female. So the bias starts with this big pile of of data. Then they create the algorithm using that. And people think about algorithms as a mathematical equation to make something work technologically. But really, the programmers put their own unconscious biases into it. We all have unconscious bias. And when you've got a homogenized group creating the algorithms, the unconscious biases are pretty much the same. The devices work for them and nobody else. And then machine learning, which is what I mentioned earlier, 
takes all the biases in the first two steps and goes right down the rabbit hole. I describe it as like a conspiracy theorist going down the rabbit hole of fake news sites. The machines learn that because we've had historical biases, we should amplify them in the future because that's obviously what's right for humans. When you think about it, it's a crazy, crazy system and that's why you need interventions. And it's fascinating that you describe this as like an algorithmic opinion of how the world should look. And I'm very grateful that you raised this issue of, you know, who are creating the algorithms and where, and where are we pulling the data from that then forms the output of these algorithms. And I mean, it seems in some ways obvious around the implications of that, Tracy, but can you help us unpack a little bit how widespread the impact of this inbuilt bias within the data and within AI actually is? Oh, yeah. The best way of describing this is by storytelling. So I'll share a few of the most shocking stories I discovered in my research. In 2016, a Nigerian tech worker tried to use an automated soap dispenser in a Marriott hotel. It didn't work for his hands, but it worked for the hands of his white colleague and it worked for a white piece of paper. Now, why did that happen? Well, it's AI light sensor technology that bounces off the skin to operate the soap dispenser. And the people who created it didn't use what's called inclusive design. They didn't test it on a lot of people. They tested it on themselves, a small group of young white men who all looked the same. And then they sent it out to Marriott hotels without doing any more testing. Now that's annoying when it's a soap dispenser, but think about this. That same light sensor technology is used in self-driving cars, which in testing are coming up to pedestrian crossings and simply not stopping for people of colour. So this is a real life and death implication of the bias. Another example, oh gosh, there are so many of them, but when it comes to things like job applications, Amazon created a hiring tool in 2018 and they thought they'd de-biased it. But through machine learning, the machine learned that historically men dominate the workplace, usually young men without disabilities. It's a really small cohort and it literally threw out the CVs of anybody else, particularly women and people over 50. The People at Amazon, they've got some of the best brains in the world. They tried to fix it, but they couldn't because the machines are so clever now. They looked in the interests and hobbies area of a lot of women's CVs. And if you said something like, I like to play netball or women's basketball, it would throw your CV out because it would make an assumption or an inference that you must be a woman and therefore you should be thrown out. Same thing happens in the banking sector. If you apply for a home loan, you are more than likely to be judged based upon an algorithm that uses those historical biases. You are less likely to get that loan. So these are real world implications. Wow. This is a podcast. So not everyone can see our face right now, but I am sitting here and Sally the same with my mouth just agape because I had no idea that it was so inbuilt in everything we do. And in particular, the very serious and life-threatening situations that you mentioned, Tracy, that's entirely awful. And it was something that because I think, you know, in the limited sort of AI feels like it's a conversation that's really kicked off in mainstream media in the last two years, really since the, you know, development of OpenAI and ChatGPT. But I think there's so many of us that don't realize what kind of technology and how widespread the use of AI is and as such, how inbuilt that bias is everywhere. I'm dumbfounded. Totally. Oh, absolutely. And the other angle of the bias is gender stereotyping and racial stereotyping, which is what started me on this journey all those years ago. My then 11-year-old son turned to me over breakfast one morning and said, mum, I want a robot slave. <laughs> like, what are you t- 
talking about? Anyway, we're terrible parents and we wanted an extra hour's sleeping in the morning. So we'd let him watch the adult cartoon series South Park. And on one episode, Cartman, a very naughty boy, was ordering around his Amazon Alexa like he was some kind of colonial master. And that made me realize that this whole stereotype of women and girls being servile in society and in the home is being embedded into the female voice chatbots. I did a little bit more research on that and guess what? It's deliberate. They do focus groups and because people in the past traditionally are more comfortable with having female personal assistants or executive assistants or the women being the bosses of the home and the men being the bosses of the workplace, they deliberately make the home chatbots female voiced and the business and finance chatbots male voiced because as a society, we have always viewed the male voices being more credible and having more gravitas. And I guess that's what shocked me the most, that a lot of this, particularly the gendered stereotyping is 100% deliberate. It's so interesting, Tracy, because I'm thinking, you know, there's quite a lot of sort of visible evidence that we have of bias. For example, in the legal system, historically, judges and lawyers were primarily male. And we can see that. And I think there's, we can, because as humans, we can lay our eyes on that, we can understand it. But this invisible bias, which is then uh, normalized because it is just sort of how it is, is, I can imagine, potentially incredibly dangerous. And I don't want to sort of have a sort of going down a doomsday or fear mongering sort of path here. But I'm wondering, you know, is this a really common misunderstanding that you think people have of AI? Is this something that is potentially dangerous? And not just the layperson, the person in the street, even specialists who use AI every day. And I'll give you a really scary example of that. I'm 56 years old. Medical technology is exploding around the world. And the intersection of that with AI really advanced during the pandemic because they needed to use machine learning to work out patterns of COVID, for example, when a lot of doctors and nurses were sick. So I get why this has happened. But if I or anyone else over 50 goes to a hospital with COVID and really struggling and there's only one ventilator left and there's a 30-year-old next to me who's also struggling, they will give the ventilator in 100% of cases to the 30-year-old because the algorithm views them as more valuable and productive in society. Now, I've spoken to doctors about this and they were shocked because they're really lost with this eventually. And maybe being a lawyer or an ex-lawyer, you would have read a lot about this, but the legislation isn't keeping up with the technology. Doctors soon, they are in Europe, but not yet in Australia, soon will have to have explainability around this technology and say to the patient, I can tell you with X percent certainty that you will or will not get breast cancer because the algorithm did this and the data set contained this. But right now, at this time in history, doctors can't have any explainability because it's a black box system. It's impenetrable. They don't know why the algorithm came up with that solution. And they're at risk of legal action because of that. However, I don't want to leave it on a negative note for this answer. On the flip side, one of the people I interviewed, Dr. Calvin Lay, who's a technologist in the US and also a computational linguist, he said, you know what? That's actually quite good because previously doctors probably made those ageist decisions 
subconsciously and you couldn't prove it if you were the family. But now there's a paper trail. Now you can see that the AI has made this decision and in a way, it's easier to point out the bias and discrimination and to do something about it. That's fascinating, Tracy. And I wonder if we can shift lens to maybe look at this and how it might impact the workplace to an extent. You know, and do you think that the evolution of AI in the workplace will lead, have an impact on others and how we actually lead other people as well? Oh, this is such a huge area. I devote a couple of chapters to this in Man Made because we're living through the fourth industrial revolution. And to understand the future, we must interrogate the past. After every other, and during, in fact, every other revolution, there were wide scale job losses, disruption to the way work happened. I mean, in one of the revolutions, we saw the advent of the office designed by men for men with the temperature and air conditioning set for the resting metabolic rate of a male. So these are really big changes in society. When you're in the middle of a revolution, you can't really see that it's happening. The What we will see in the next five to 10 years, according to people who've researched this deeply, is we will lose 82 million jobs globally from AI 95 million will be created though. So that's the good news. The bad news is most of those jobs that will be created, you will need to be extremely technically savvy to do. And we know because of the archetype of the IT guy that there's still not enough focus on getting diversity and inclusion into computing, even though back in the 1950s, women dominated the sector. The other issue we're seeing is we saw a huge disruption 10 to 15 years ago in both transport and manufacturing when Uber disrupted the taxi industry, when a lot of blue-collar male jobs were lost to artificial intelligence. The jobs that will be lost in the next two to three years are 90% female. They're things like marketing. They're things like an executive or a personal assistant. They're around retail and a lot of hospitality jobs and the travel industry. So it's really going to hit women hard and also people in the global south because what artificial intelligence has done to the workplace has, is, has widened the power gap and the wealth gap between rich and poor because all the capital sits in Silicon Valley and the unpaid and underpaid work is done by people in marginalised communities. That terrible job that people in Kenya do going through horrific images to label them as offensive so our eyes don't have to be soiled by it in the West. Around leadership, because I know your podcast really focuses on human leadership, the good news is we still need humans to lead. Yes, there will be algorithms making rosters and decisions on promotions and pay rises and hiring, but we need to have what's called human-in-the-loop systems, which effectively is, yes, use AI in your workplace, but have a human overseeing it at every step of the way and have a leader who understands the technology. Don't just outsource everything to a third party. Leaders of the future are going to need to understand how this works. It's fascinating, Tracy. Thank you so much for walking us through that. And I'm thinking, I'm imagining a leader, and I was first going to say, sort of propose this leader who's listening, but actually the question is just mine. <laughs> this is me. I'm hearing these awareness that's so important and understanding how we can use AI in a conscious way and bringing that, you know, human to the loop component of it is so important. But given what we've also just heard about this intrinsic bias that exists in AI, for a leader who's listening and thinking, you know, I want to make sure that I'm very much cognizant of that and ensuring that I'm not perpetuating that to the extent that I can, what are some things that they might be able to do to have an impact in their leadership and in their workplace? There are so many good solutions out there. They're nascent 
but they're working. There's a whole movement around what's called mindful AI. And that's got a few components. It starts with having clean and diverse data sets that you can get organizations to effectively insert inclusivity into your data sets, which is brilliant to make it representative of the whole population, the rich diversity of the population. Then you can get audits of your data and of your algorithms. In fact, in New York City from January, you will face a fine if you're a company that uses a hiring algorithm and you do not do an audit every single year. Because you could do an audit for bias one year and it's not there. And then the next year, the machine has learned bias. Another really good thing you can do as a leader is to get onto the website for the Center for Inclusive Design run by Dr. Manisha Amin in Sydney. She talks a lot about the example of Braille. Before Braille was invented, they tried to get a whole bunch of sighted people to develop something and it didn't work. They wasted so much money and time. It took someone with a sight impairment to develop Braille. If you're creating something from scratch, an innovation or a device using AI, then test it on a whole bunch of different people. That's what inclusive design is all about because you'll create a better innovation that will be used by a broader cross-section of the public and you'll sell more units. So it's win-win. That's a very comprehensive answer, Tracy. Thank you. Because what I like about it is it gives the individual the cognizance of where they should be looking out for bias. What you also articulated was in how the products and services we're delivering at a team level, at an organizational level, we can be putting those checking mechanisms in place. And then I also appreciate the mention that you said in New York City where there is legislation around this. Do you feel like there's a big step to be taken in terms of government regulation around the AI space as well? Is this a big piece of the puzzle? In a word, yes. Legislation is lagging dramatically. In America, we're not going to see anything strong because they're so beholden to the free market. They've got an election next year. They wouldn't dare slap any regulations on big tech at this point in time. No party would be brave enough to do that. The European Union Union's AI Act is very, very good. It came out in its finalised form, I think, the other day. It's got a traffic light system where if an innovation is red, do not use. It is unsafe or biased. If it's yellow, use with caution and audits. And if it's green, go for your life. Really simple system. It's got a lot of carrots as well as a lot of sticks and you need the sticks because you know, it's how you change human behavior and corporations are exactly the same. In Australia, we're lagging behind. Ed Husick put out, the science minister put out two discussion papers earlier this year. We haven't heard anything about regulation or legislation yet. He set aside an AI safety Awareness Month of November. We had our first one this year. But to me, that's just trying to push the problem down the road. I interviewed the former Human Rights Commissioner, Ed Santo, for my book. And he did a three-year review recently where he suggested Australia could have the world's first AI safety commissioner. And I reckon that's a terrific idea, whether it's a standalone or under the umbrella of the e-safety commissioner, Julian Mangrant. Because what we could do then, as a smaller English-speaking nation, we already are attesting ground for technology. We could use that role and put up guardrails around the tech and test it in what's called a regulatory sandbox to make it safe before these innovations are unleashed on an unsuspecting public. So I'm a glass half full kind of gal. I like to look at solutions rather than just throwing our hands up and thinking we're all doomed. I completely agree with you. I think that's very much our mentality at human leaders as well. And you know, I think that really what you've elucidated about regulation is such an important point and it applies in 
the sense of AI into other areas as well that we need to, I think, acknowledge that to some extent legislation and regulation is going to struggle, if not simply fail to keep up. So how can we ensure that we're creating legislation and regulation that can be flexible and agile enough to accommodate for this changing world in which we live? And I think what I really love that you highlighted as well is making sure that there are penalties in place for misconduct and that, that you know corporations really do suffer if they're not you know adhering to those regulations because it's all too often we see in other arenas too that they'll take the hit of a 200,000 euro fine because they're making so much money outside of that. So I think it's such an important point to make. It's a great point. And there's a clear parallel with the Me Too movement here, which I did a lot of work around. This is a workplace health and safety issue, and it's a broader societal safety issue. And we all deserve to be safe. And governments, unfortunately, are populated with a lot of older people. I mean, that's fine, but a lot of them aren't very tech savvy. And because they don't understand the technology, they fear legislating around it and they can be talked in circles by the spin doctors in big tech. So what they've got to do is understand the technology, understand the issues. And there are simple things they could put in place now. They could use that New York legislation and come up with, okay, if you've got an AI development that is a risk to safety, then it must be audited for safety, ethics and bias every year or you face a penalty. Really simple. Or it could be something like you need to report publicly, if you're a public, publicly listed company, on those audits and the result of them in the same way as a lot of companies now report publicly on the gender pay gap. I reckon there are some really you know, inspired solutions we can find from other problems in history, other issues and other industries. And in my book, I go through examples like when you get pharmaceuticals registered, you know, we've got the TGA and organizations like that. Other people have talked about almost having like a nuclear safety commission around artificial intelligence. I think that's a great idea. If you can get some kind of commission that can come up with you know, really clever solutions, then we might actually save humanity. I mean, surely that's enough of an incentive, right? I absolutely agree with you there, Tracy. And I think in the meantime, what I appreciate about this though is, you know, we tend to find that regulation always lags with fast moving technology, but it sounds to me because we know in the data, it's also telling us that diversity, equity, inclusion have huge benefits to organizations, to team collaboration, creativity, people's sense of belonging in the workplace. It sounds to me that companies who actually take this very seriously and take active steps towards mitigating that bias and ensuring that there isn't this AI bias present to the best of their capacity in their workplaces actually have an opportunity to create some form of competitive advantage when it comes to attracting and retaining quality human beings as well. They really do. All of the research, and I did some recent stuff for Gartner, the massive global HR and research firm, all the research shows that if you're a company that uses this technology or creates this technology, if you have greater diversity and inclusion, if you use inclusive design, if you have an ethical and responsible AI framework, not only will you attract more customers, and have a better bottom line, you'll be able to get that young labor in particular, because a lot of young people these days, and I love this about the next generation, don't want to go and work for a firm that has terrible ethics around technology. You know, they really stand their ground. And if they find a firm is like that, they'll probably leave. We have labor shortages in the technology sector. So if you're a leader out there and you're running a company and you want to retain your staff and keep them happy, this is one of the really most powerful ways you can do it. Mm. 
Thank you for that, Tracy. Now, you've just described yourself as a glass half full kind of person. And I know that we could continue asking you questions all day, but I'd love to finish on this question. And that is, how do you see AI really impacting the future of work and humanity as a whole? Oh, at the end of my book, I have a chapter on utopia and a chapter on dystopia. But my thinking has evolved a little since then because I discovered Protopia. Have either of you heard of this? No, never. Yes. One of my favorite historians refers to it, but please share your thoughts on it. Oh, I love that. Which historian? Uh, Rutger Brechman. He's a Dutch historian and sociologist. Oh, that is so fabulous. I stumbled upon it reading some of the work of one of the co-founders of Wired magazine, and he views Protopia as making incremental changes over time for the betterment of humanity, society, and the workplace, but using technology as a tool and effectively us mastering it before it masters us. Because I don't think that AI or any form of technology is going to remove the burden 100% of household work or paid work. I think it might help us, but I don't think it's going to be a utopia. Equally, I don't think it's going to be the end of humanity. What we can do is to take control of it and use it for the jobs that we don't want to do. For example, with ChatGPT, use it for the rudimentary tasks. Try to use machine teaching to de-bias it. For example, if you're telling it you want a story of an engineer and a childcare worker, insist that the engineer is female and the childcare worker is male. Flip the technology on its head and use it for the betterment of yourself, the workplace and society. That's such a beautiful point to finish on, Tracy. I think, you know, protopia, we're pro-protopia. I think it's a really exciting concept. And for me, it feels really exciting because it reflects the fact that we can step into our agency here. We can use the power that we each have, however that manifests, to start to drive change and to ensure that we're mastering this incredible tool that we have in front of us. Really wise words. I love that you'd heard of Protopia. Thank you for talking to me today. It's been a delight. Thank you so much for being with us, Tracy. Thank you for joining us for this thought-provoking episode of We Are Human Leaders. You can learn more about Tracy and her work and where to find her book in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the episode, feel welcome to rate and review us with a five-star rating. And if you're curious about working with us at Human Leaders, reach out at www.wearehumanleaders.com. We'll see you next time.